it's great to be back. And I'm excited about our new series, Uprising. We're going to talk about uh, this crazy world we live in. Can the church still make a difference? Is it too late to make a difference? If it's not too late, how do we actually make a difference? And I want to begin this weekend a little differently. I want to begin by giving you, okay, you ready for this? Some church history, okay? And I can hear the excitement. In fact, some of you are thinking, bring Donnie back. Bring Donnie back. Yeah, he talks funny. He says things like oot and a boot. And, uh, and uh, he tried to get us to serve other people, right? And tried to take our money last week by convincing us to be people of generosity, but that's got to be better than church history, right? Right. By the way, let me just say this. Last week, Donnie challenged us. There are some specific individual needs in the community that we have the opportunity to address, but it's going to take some manpower and it's going to take some money above our regular budget. So he challenged us as we walked out. Remember the buckets at the back door? Uh, the goal was 350 people to volunteer to be a part of the solution. We needed $60,000 to pay for it. Uh, as of Friday, 357 people had gone online and registered to be a part of the solution. And you gave, as you walked out, $68,000 last week. And it's actually still coming in. So thank you. And I'll tell you why I love that kind of stuff. It reminds me that here at Hope Community Church, regardless of how big we get, that it's still about the individuals. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about the individuals. And getting back to church history, that hasn't always been the case. Because I'll tell you, during the 20th century, uh, the emphasis uh, of the Christian church in America shifted from ministering to the individual to actually ministering to the masses. During that time, seminaries actually developed courses to train and teach an individual how you could impact a lot of people. And it's interesting, it was during this time that things like the Billy Graham crusade began. One individual impacting masses. Uh, if you grew up in a church like I did, we had revivals all the time. And the goal was to get as many people to church. And we had things like pack a pew and the person who brought the most guests would get a prize and all kinds of things. But it was about reaching the masses. In fact, there were probably evangelistic crusades all across our country, cities all through the United States, because we were focused on the masses. What happened was around the early 1960s, our nation began to implode. And we began to hear terms like population explosion, ecology for the very, very first time. At the same time, our nation's youth began to struggle with what many in the press described as identity or a loss of identity. See, you didn't know we had millennials even, even back in the 1960s, right? On top of that, the long felt tension of racial equality, think about that, erupted into riots in American cities all across our country. To make matters worse, we had to suffer through the heartbreak of assassinations of some of our greatest leaders. I was in my second grade class. Mrs. Settle was my teacher. She walked in before the class. It was obvious that she had been crying, and she shared with us that our president had been killed. I remember that. We had to suffer through the assassination of a civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. To add to that tension, we were involved in a war in Vietnam that nobody seemed to know how to win. And socially, it was a crazy time. We became familiar with terms like sit-ins, communal living, free love, drug abuse, abortion. And even though there was no way that anybody could miss what was going on in our society, this is what's interesting. If you do your church history, you will discover that the church did very, very little to respond. And it wasn't because the church didn't know it was happening. No one could miss it. It was just that the church just didn't know what to do about it. And one of the reasons they didn't know what to do about it was they had been trained to reach the masses. And if you were an individual and you were actually hurting, you were just out of luck because the church didn't know what to do with you. Now understand, it was this period of time in church history that the church was branded as the established church. The church was considered out of touch with society. It was considered irrelevant. And as a result, the church lost much of its influence in society. 
But thankfully, in the late 1960s into the early 1970s, the light came on. And we learned a hard lesson. And things began to shift and seminaries and churches began to change because we were reminded you can't just focus on the masses and ignore the individual. You have to minister to the individual. And as a result of that, the church began to regain some of its influence in the world. But you know what's interesting? Over the past three decades, there's been another phenomenon in America. It's called the mega church. And the mega church is any church in America by definition that averages at least 2,000 people in attendance on the weekend. Obviously, we are a mega church. And I've often said, I don't know if the mega church was God's idea and that's why it's been so productive or if it was man's idea and God just decided to bless it. But it's been incredible. But here's my fear. With the rise of the mega church in America, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if the individual is once again being ignored. I'll give you an example. As you guys know, I turned 60 in July. So I thought, I think I'll do a little bit of research myself. So I went back to 1956. That's the year I was born. In 1956, the U.S. population was about 170 million people. At that time, the best I can tell from what I could discover, we had 20 mega churches in America, 20 churches that averaged 2,000 people. That's one mega church for one every eight and a half million people. Fast forward to uh, 2016, there are now over 1,600 megachurches in America. That is one megachurch for every 212,000 people. And I think that you read that and you would think, wow, that's incredible. That must mean that more people are being impacted, more people are being challenged with the gospel of Jesus Christ, more lives are being changed, the church is having more influence on society than ever. Not necessarily true. Because if you go back to 1956, the percentage of Protestants that was attending church regularly was 70%. Now in America, the percentage of Protestants that are attending church has dropped to 38%. And I think it's because in our growth and reaching the masses, we haven't been very careful. And once again, the individual is being ignored. And I think that it may be the reason that it seems that our society is more screwed up than ever. I mean, think about it. Just like in the 1960s, social issues are surfacing that we never had to deal with before. There's more confusion than ever. And I'll tell you the reason there's more confusion is anytime you remove absolutes from society, you're gonna have more confusion. So when you have things like, we just went through a national debate as Americans about, well, what is marriage? Where the Bible kind of made it clear, God created Adam and Eve, a man and a woman. He brought them together. He officiated their wedding And it's interesting, if you study it in the Hebrew, the way God brought them together and they became one, the Hebrew terms this idea that man had certain strengths and weaknesses, women have certain strengths and weaknesses, and when they, they, this is basically what happens. They become one when they come together. That's the way God designed marriage. But we decided, well, that's kind of 1990s. I'm not sure that's fair. So we decided marriage could be any two consenting adults who wants to be married. And I'm happy for those who get to experience that, but that's not the biblical definition for marriage. And so it shouldn't surprise us that I read just last week that there's now someone who's going to challenge the law that you can only be married to one person. As long as you, if you want to have three, five wives and they're all consenting, who's to say what's fair, what's right, what's wrong? You know why? There's no absolutes. How about sexual identity? Where did that come from all of a sudden? I'm sure it's been around. It's been around since I was a kid. But all of a sudden, it's, it's just constantly in the press, sexual identity. A generation you know, ago, you know what they were saying? Sexual what? Right? But we have to deal with it now, right? 
And all of a sudden, you know, we, we forget that it says in Genesis 1:27 that God created them. He made them male and female. Jesus reiterated in Matthew chapter nine, man was, God created them male and female. On top of that, you go to Psalm 139 and it says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are knit together in our mother's womb, which means God is, God is involved in the creation. Every one of us before our mom even gave birth to us, which tells me he assigned us our sexual identity. But now we live in a culture that says, well, you know what? If you don't feel that, you don't have to be that. You can be what you feel. So it shouldn't surprise us that last week we read that in the Charlotte Mecklenburg School District, they informed their teachers as they were going back to school, don't call your classes, don't refer to them as girls and boys. That's, that could be hurtful to some. You can call them students or you can call them scholars. Right. I would have been called a student, by the way, without a doubt, if I, if I, I was still in school. Right. And I'm not, I'm not saying that, that that's not an issue in our culture that we need to deal with. But again, when we remove absolutes, see, do you guys remember a couple of years ago when the president of the NAACP, in fact, we found out she wasn't African-American. She was white pretending to be an African-American. And of course she got fired. Laura and I were somewhere and we were watching the Today Show and they were, they were interviewing her a year later. And this is what she said on the Today Show. They said, why did you do that? She said, you know what? I feel inside like I'm an African-American. And you know what my thought was? If she feels it, who are we to say? You know what I'm saying? Do you understand the slippery slope that we open up in our world when we do away with biblical absolutes? Now, this is what I wrote in the margin of my message. The removal of absolutes in culture never brings more clarity. It always results in more confusion. So there's the social issues that have returned, but that's not all. Racial tension, all-time high. We're seeing the return of riots to our city. You know where I was on April 2nd, 1968, seven o'clock in the evening? I was in a car with a Sunday school teacher, two of my friends, we were Main Street, downtown Durham. All of a sudden a riot broke out. Windows began to be smashed. Things were set on fire. We had no idea what was going on. Our car was surrounded. I remember a group of angry faces shaking our car and my Sunday school teacher kept pumping the gas until like the Red Sea had parted and, and we got where we dropped off one of my friends and his mom came out and told us that Martin Luther King had just been assassinated. I remember what it was like to live under curfews. You weren't allowed to leave your yard. You couldn't go anywhere after six o'clock in the evening. But you know what? That was 50 years ago. I thought for sure in a great land like America, that's part of our past, Right? No, they're resurfacing. On top of that, we've got the tension between the haves and the have-nots. Remember the 1%, the 99%? Guess what? Once again, we're involved in a war on terrorism that no one knows how to win. I'm telling you, it is the 1960s all over again. And so here's the question, I guess if I lead this place, what does this mean to us? Because see, not only are we a mega church. Uh, a report that just came out said we're in one of the top 50 largest mega churches in America. So are we part of the solution or are we part of the problem? Are we gonna focus on the masses or are we gonna focus on the individual? Now, if we're gonna focus on the individual, we have to ask ourselves, how do we invest our time and resources in such a way that by changing individuals, we actually change culture and it has a ripple effect and it impacts the world. Now, let's be honest. If you ask the average politician that question, you know what they're gonna tell you? Well, we gotta work on social justice. 
We've got to work toward racial, racial reconciliation. We've got to stomp out hunger. We've got to stomp out poverty. We've got to do a, big, a better job of providing education to everyone because in America, we've told everybody, if you're educated, you can do anything and be anything you want to be, right? All the great things. All the things that we should be involved in as followers of Jesus Christ. But you got to understand as Christians, if we want to focus on individuals in such a way that it actually begins to impact culture and change the world, at the end of the day, the Bible calls us to do one thing. It's like curly and city slickers. It's that one thing. And you got to figure out what that one thing is. And that one thing is this. We have been called to make disciples. In fact, regardless of the size of the church, whether it's 100 people or 100,000 people, whether it's a few families in a home church or whether it's a mega church, that is the mission that God has placed at the heart of the church. By the way, let me just say this. And this is where we get screwed up sometimes. As we do our job of making disciples, that list I just went through, social issues, racial reconciliation, poverty, hunger, education, guess what? That list begins to take care of itself. That was God's plan. You know that, don't you? You know that, that when we become Christians, they're immediate. why don't we immediately just go to heaven and get out of this mess? Because God had a plan and his plan was for us to stay here and to be salt and to be light. In fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men so that they see what your good deeds, the difference that you can make in society, but they don't give glory to you. They give glory to your father who is in heaven. See, that was God's plan for changing the world from day one. But we gotta make sure we're doing our job. Is salt and light. Now, our mission statement at Hope is simply this. Love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And what that means is simply this. When you walk into the door of one of our five campuses, we're going to love you regardless of the baggage, regardless of the mess that you bring with you. We don't care where you've been. We don't care what you've been up to. We are going to love you where you are. But understand, we don't want you to stay where you are. We want to encourage you to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, we want you to experience the life that Jesus designed for you to experience as one of his followers. A life of forgiveness, a life, a life of peace, a life of joy, a life of hope. A life that has purpose, a life of serving one another, being a person of generosity, connecting in community, a person that's sharing their story, how Jesus changed your life. We want you to experience that. And that process of you getting from where you are to where not only Jesus wants you to be, but deep down inside to where you want to be as a follower of Jesus Christ, that process is called discipleship. It's making disciples. And even that term in today's culture is getting a little scary because we think disciples, we think extremists, right? See, we hear a term a lot on the news, radicalized. He was a radicalized Muslim that drove the bus, that blew up the bomb, radicalized, scary term. Fanatic, scary term, scary term. When I was growing up, I went to one of those independent, King James only, black suit, white shirt, red tie, we're the only ones right, everybody else is wrong kind of church. You know what we referred to ourselves as? Fundamentalist. Scary term. You know what we used to call ourselves as teenagers? Funny damn mentalists. We didn't know what it meant, but it sounded funny to us, right? Right. So this is what I want to talk about in this series. How do we make disciples of Jesus Christ so we can act, actually impact and change the world? Not just put a band-aid on things, but we can actually change the world by changing the character of people. We're going to do this by looking into the book of Acts. If you have your Bible this weekend, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1. The official name is actually Acts of the Apostles, not a very accurate name because there are really only two apostles highlighted in the book of Acts. It's, it's, it's Paul and it, it's Peter, 
But this is a key book because the book of Acts bridges the life of Jesus into the life of his followers. By the way, the life of Jesus, if you're new to church, is found in the Gospels. The, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in the Gospels, basically, Jesus models, Jesus personifies, he lives out the life that he offers to us. But this is what's interesting. When you go from the end of John to the book of Acts, all of a sudden we become the models. In other words, we become salt and light. We begin to personify the truths of Jesus' life to this world. In fact, as I was getting ready with this series, I came up with a significant thought. I only have one every couple of years. So you're safe when I lay this one on you for a couple of years. But let me give it to you. If you. When you get to the end of the Gospels, the last fact revealed about Jesus is his resurrection. When you get to the end of Mark's Gospel, the last fact revealed about Jesus is the ascension into heaven. When you get to the end of John's Gospel, or Luke's Gospel, the last fact that's revealed about Jesus is he tells his followers, you guys hang out right here in Jerusalem because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And when you get to the end of the Gospel of John, the last fact that you read about Jesus is that he's going to return to this earth one day. But this is what's interesting. When you get to the book of Acts, before you even finish the first chapter, chapter one, all four have been mentioned. The resurrection, the ascension, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and the second coming. All four have been mentioned, and we're shown as followers of Jesus Christ how they relate to us. So in other words, the book of Acts, in a real sense, is putting shoe leather to the gospel. Okay, It is the bridge that transfers us from the theory of Jesus' life into the actuality of that life, into the actuality of living out his life, of being a disciple. Now, understand Luke is the writer. And early on, he gives us the major plot. Just like if, if you like to read good novels. See, I like to read Jack Reacher novels, okay? I, don't, I can't go to the movies because if you've read Jack Reacher novels by Lee Child, Jack Reacher is an ex-military guy, six foot five, 250 pounds, strapping man, right? Guess who plays him in the movies? Tom Cruise. Four foot two, 78 pounds. I'm like, I can't, it's like, it's like sacrilegious. I can't even watch the movies, right, right? But in any great novels that we like to read, I like John Sanford, all the prey novels. You love the major plot, but there's always these subplots, these relationships, these different things going on. He gives us, he gives us the major plot in Acts chapter one, verse eight. Jesus said this right before he went back to heaven. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Understand, that is the focus, that is the main plot, that is the heartbeat of the book of Acts. It is about an uprising. It is about a revolution. These small band of followers taking up the torch of the gospel and they're getting it throughout the world. They're sharing it everywhere. Everybody that will listen, they're sharing the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And people said they turned the world upside down. Nope, that's not what God called us to do. He called us to turn the world back right side up. And that's what they're doing by sharing the gospel. And it began in Jerusalem. You can read about it in chapters one through chapter seven. And then remember, it made its way to Judea and Samaria. That's chapters eight through 12 of the book of Acts. And then from chapter 13, right up to today, okay, it's making its way to the ends of the earth. That is the major plot of the book of Acts. It is evangelism. It's reaching the masses. And that's okay because you cannot make a disciple of Jesus Christ until someone is a follower of Jesus Christ, until they cross that line and accept him as their personal savior. But being a good writer, Luke also adds in the subplot. And the subplot of the book of Acts has to do with discipleship. In other words, Luke doesn't just talk about the gospel being spread. He doesn't just talk about the churches that are being started. He doesn't just talk about big personalities like Peter and Paul. He puts the spotlight on some people who normally aren't in the spotlight. And he zooms in and he focuses on their lives. Now this weekend, we're going we're gonna to see an example 
of that in Acts chapter 18. We're going to get to see what discipleship looks like. By the way, it's easy for me to sit up here because I grew up in church and been around church all my life and assume you naturally know what I mean when I talk about discipleship, but I can tell some of you the lights are on, nobody's home. So let me just give you a definition. And this is not a very churchy definition and, and our spiritual formations team are going to rake me over the coals this week and we're going to parse every word, but let me just give you one you can understand. Discipleship is an informal behind the scenes character training experience. That's all it is. It's an informal behind, it's not a program. We're gonna see that next week. It's an informal behind the scenes character training experience. I think it best takes place in a relationship between two individuals. And the goal is simply for one person to help the other person live out the gospel, live out the Christian life, live out the life of Jesus. That's really all it is. And you probably aren't surprised to know this was best illustrated in the life of Jesus. In fact, if you look at Mark chapter three, verse three, we'll put the verses on the screen. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So Jesus chose 12 men. We know the story. We know them as disciples. He hangs out with them, but he trains them over a three-year period of time. And then once they are ready, he gives them the authority and he gives them the power to go out and do what it is that he's trained them to do. And then right before Jesus leaves this earth and ascends back to heaven, he gives his followers what has become known as the Great Commission. What's interesting is if you read the Great Commission, it doesn't include words like crusade, revival, campaign, budgets, programs, multi-sites. Doesn't even include the word church. He said to those that were listening that day, now get out there and make disciples. That's it. Go make disciples. In fact, you can read about it, Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, I want you to get out there and I want you to raise up men and women just like I've done with you. Now, as I said, Acts chapter 18, we get to see the subplot and we get to see how this was modeled in the life of the apostle Paul on a trip that he made to Corinth. So let's just pick it up. Let me point out three things that Paul did, he met a couple and he invested in their lives. Their names were Aquila and Priscilla. Great names, sounds like they should be on America's Got Talent or a circus act or something. But he meets Aquila and Priscilla and the first thing he does, let me give you the principle, then we'll unpack it. He took the risk of being transparent, big risk. Look what it says, Acts chapter 18, verse one. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his life Priscilla. Now, I take it they'd never met before. They meet in Corinth, by the way, which in the first century was literally the crossroads of civilization. They meet in Corinth. They strike up a friendship. It says in verse three, and because he, and that's a reference to Paul, because Paul was a tent maker as they were, he stayed with them and he worked with them. So they decide they're going to live together. They're going to work together. Not that uncommon in the first century. By the way, let me ask you a question. What if the great apostle Paul was still alive? And what if he attended our church? And what if he came up to you in the atrium and said, hey, I'd like to live with you. How would you feel about that? I think we would come up with every reason under the sun why that is not a good idea, Paul. House is a mess. Kids are a mess. Dog's a mess. Husband's really a mess. I mean, it's just not, just not a good time, right? Now, why are we like that? Why do we do that? Well, it's because most of us are consumed with the surface stuff of life. What people see, what people think. Evidently, Paul didn't care about that. He was interested in real, authentic, transparent life. And when Paul said to Aquila and Priscilla, I want to get to know you, you know what he was implying? I want you to get to know me too. 
But for that to happen, he's gonna have to be transparent. Now, let me just say this. Let me get on my soapbox for a second. Let's just, just raise your hand if you're on some form of social media. Just raise your hand. Come on, Facebook, whatever, Pinterest, whatever the thing is. Okay, okay. I believe that one of the reasons social media is so incredibly popular is because you don't have to be transparent. You see, on social media, you can be whatever you wanna be. You can post whatever picture you wanna post. Doesn't matter how old it is. Maybe it's back when you had hair, if you're me, like put it up there, give, give everybody the impression. Wow, you know. I used to have a porn stash. I could put that one up there, you know. <laughs> Some of you have seen those pictures. You can do that. You can say anything you want to say that makes your life look cool, your life looks glamorous, your life looks exotic. I mean, when you think about it, at the end of the day, let's be honest, social media is a lot about image management. But I think what really drives social media is this. We all want to be known, but not only do we want to be known, we want to be known for something, right? In fact, I made a list of things that we want to be known for. Some of you would never admit it, but you want to be known for your good looks, see? And that's why you put certain pictures on Facebook. Some of you want to be known for your talent. Some of you want to be known for your lifestyle. Maybe it's a very extravagant lifestyle. So every time you're, you're somewhere around the world, you post those pictures. You want people to know. Maybe it's a very meager lifestyle and you're proud of that. You want people to know. Some of you want to be known for your politics. Good gracious. Get a life, people, you know. You want people to know I am super conservative, you know. I want people to know I'm ultra liberal, right? Some of us want to be known for our accomplishments, some of you, you want to be known for the success of your kids. Some of us want to be known because of our education. Or maybe we want to be known as a great spouse or a great parent. And we could go on and on and on. But here's the thing. We all want to be known. I think that's just part of our human nature. And we all want to be known for something. Now, here's the problem. The problem comes when there's a gap or a discrepancy between what we want to be known for and what we really are. Because when there's a gap, when there's a discrepancy, what happens? We pretend, we exaggerate, maybe we even lie because deep down inside, we know we're not living up to the image that we're projecting. And when that's the case, we set ourselves up for something that's really unhealthy. We sell ourselves up for secrets and the people we care about the most are the ones that we keep secrets from because the people closest to us are the ones we're most concerned about impressing. But the reality is we all have gaps. We all have discrepancies from what people think about us and who we really are. So we, we learn from, from childhood to pretend to cover up. For example, if you're a single guy and there's a gap between the reality of who you are and what you want a certain female to think about you, you might exaggerate, right? You might exaggerate about how much money you make, you know, or your job. Maybe you're a garbage collector. So you got a business card that says sanitation engineer. See that, that, that sounds impressive, right? You want, it's an image, right? If you're a single lady, you know what I'm talking about. You, you meet a guy, you like him, you invite him over for dinner, you can't cook a lick, right? So you go to Macaroni Grill, get the best lasagna they have, come home, put it in your little corningware dish, stick it in the oven, take it out. Like, why would you do that? Well, see, you, you want to give the message. You know, you want to present yourself in a way that says, I can cook and I can take care of my man, right? Right? Maybe that's not the way you would do it. Maybe I just set women's rights back 100 years, but some just, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. If you're married and have a family, we've all done that, you know? We get in the car and fight all the way to church. Shut up, I'll just pull over, you know, all the way to church, right? Pull in the parking lot, see the guy with the Mickey Mouse hand, put a big smile across your face, everything is beautiful, why? Because everybody thinks you have a perfect marriage and a perfect family, right? We do that all the time. I don't wanna ruin that image, we do it with our kids. 
It's obnoxious. You guys put those bumper stickers all over the back of your car. My kid is so great in this and so great in that. Nobody puts a bumper sticker that says, my kid, my kid gets picked last every time on the playground. Nobody does that. <laughs> nobody has a bumper sticker that says, your kid can beat up my kid. See, nobody, nobody says that, right? Maybe the perception you're giving off is you're living the dream, but you're up to your eyeballs in debt, and nobody knows the stress that you're living under constantly because it could all cave in at any time. My point is this, wherever there's a gap, whenever things aren't as they really appear, we cover, we pretend, and we hope nobody ever gets to know the real us. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. Imagine being me. I have the audacity to sit up here on the weekend and pretend I know what I'm talking about. I even have the audacity to tell you how to live your life. And there's a natural assumption that I can do everything I tell you to do. I'm telling you, nobody is that good. Except who? Who can do everything we talk about? No, Laura. I was thinking Laura, but we'll go with Jesus. We'll go with Jesus, right? Okay, Jesus, Jesus, right answer. And so people come up to me and say, oh, you're so transparent. You know what? I'm not transparent. I'm just honest. I'm just, you, oh, you were talking directly to me today. How did you know this is what's going on in my life? Hey, newsflash, because I'm dealing with the same crap in my life, see? My point is this, if things aren't what they should be, we pretend we cover up. So here's my question. I know who we're doing image management with. Hey, we're doing image management with each other. Here's my question. Who are you doing life with? See, I know what you want to be known for, but who really knows you? Who knows that when you go home at night, the websites that you visit? Who knows the habit that you can't break? the feelings that you're harboring. Who knows those things? You see, Paul takes a huge risk and he says, you know, you guys wanna live together? We can split the rent. And they're like, sure, if you don't mind the mess. And I'm sure that when word began to get around Corinth that the great apostle Paul was living in Aquila Priscilla, you know everywhere they went, Home Depot. Hey, what is it like? It must be incredible living with the great apostle Paul. And I'm sure the response was like, eh, it's not that great. He's a guy like anybody else, puts his toe on one leg at a time, you know, leaves his dirty socks all over the place, drinks right out of the milk carton. You know, just, it's not that great, right? My point is this, there was, there was transparency. Let me give you this lesson. And I wrote this principle down for me, okay? But if it applies to you, here it is. You impress lives from a distance, you impact lives close up. See, Paul knew that. But he wasn't just transparent with them. Second, he trained them spiritually. Verse four, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so here you have Paul teaching in the synagogue and you can just see Aquila and Priscilla. I mean, they're just taking notes like crazy. But, but that's not it. That's not the only place they're learning. Verse 11, so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching the word of God. So it was formal, it was informal. It was direct, it was indirect. Sometimes it was at synagogue. Sometimes it was sitting around eating some eggs for breakfast in the morning as they're talking about life on life, right? It was, it, it's how Paul impacted Aquila and Priscilla. He trained them spiritually. So that's a certain aspect. And then third, Paul multiplied himself through them. Now understand, this is a key component of discipleship. It's not about addition, it's about multiplication. This was Jesus's plan, it's brilliant. I'm gonna show it to you next week. But let me just show you the verse. Luke chapter uh, eight, or 18, look at verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 20, when they, and this is the people of Ephesus, when they asked Paul to spend more time with them, he said no. 
He just left Aquila and Priscilla there with them. Why? Because he spent a, he's, a year and a half, he's trained them to do the job. And then it says in verse 21, as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. In other words, I will come back if God works it out. But if I don't, I think implied here is don't worry about it. You're in good hands. And then it says he set sail for Ephesus. Now I want you to know something. Look at what happens next in verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, remember Apollos from 1 Corinthians chapter three? A Jew named Apollos, native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, which by the, at that time, the only thing they had was the Old Testament. So it, it meant he really understood the Old Testament. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor, which means you know, he was gifted in that area. And he talked about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. So what he knew, he spoke accurately about, but his his knowledge was limited. And Aquila and Priscilla, they're listening to Apollos and they pick up on that. And their first thought is, man, this kid is gifted. But there's some stuff he doesn't know, right? I mean, he's obviously heard about Jesus, but from what I can tell, he hasn't heard about the crucifixion. He hasn't heard about the resurrection. That's a big deal. He hasn't heard about his ascension back to heaven. He hasn't heard how he sent us the Holy Spirit. And they're thinking, this kid is incredible. He has incredible potential, but there's some gaps in what he's been taught. There's some gaps in his theology. And I think their very next thought was this. You know what we need to do? We need to invest in him the very same way that Paul invested in us. And look at what happens in verse 26. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. In other words, they cared enough to invite him into their lives and they began to disciple him the way that Paul had discipled them. I mean, you think he's teachable. Let's just help him understand the full message so that he can reach his full potential as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus Christ. But I also notice in verse 27, when Paulus wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. So I noticed they encouraged him, they supported him, and then they released him. And I'll say more about that next weekend, but that is so healthy. Understand, discipleship isn't about you, Mr. and Mrs. Spiritual Giant, you know, having clones. It's not about you starting a following or maybe having a cult, right? It's not about that at all. It's about you coming alongside an individual and impacting his or her life in a spiritual way. And as that individual begins to grow and mature and be transformed into the person that God created them to be, you release them so that God can take them to any direction that he's chosen for them. In other words, discipleship isn't, it's not about keeping. It's just like with our children. What do we do? We train, we release, we train, we release, we train, we release. That's our job. And that's what Aquila and Priscilla did with Apollos. They taught him, they cared for him, they affirmed him, they supported him. And one day when he walked into the kitchen and God had moved in Apollo's heart and he said, hey, I think this is what God wants me to do. They were like, go for it go for it. They even wrote letters to Achaia saying, hey, Apollos is coming your way. Listen to him. He's the real deal. He's the real deal. And when he got there, he did two things. Verse 27, when he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. What is that? Well, they already believed, so he's coming alongside of them. That's discipleship. It's focusing on the individual. Verse 28, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. See, that's, that's evangelism. That's focusing on the masses. It's not an either or. It's both. They go hand in hand. Now, let me just give you a couple of takeaways, and then we're done. Here's the first one. Discipleship is the best way to impact someone's life spiritually. Are you one of those individuals, you've been a Christian for a while, but you're, just, you're like a hamster on that wheel. You just can't, you're not making any progress whatsoever. Same sins, same bad habits, same mistakes, same failures in the relationships. 
You know what you need? You need to be discipled. It's the best way to change somebody's life spiritually. It's not to get somebody here on the weekend so they can hear me ramble for 40 minutes. It isn't to get them into a small group. Great. Don't get me wrong. Both are valuable. Part of the process. But discipleship is the only method for real life change that's endorsed in the Bible. That's discipleship. Somebody meeting with you. Iron sharpening iron. It's not, hey, listening to great sermons while you walk. It's not it. Reading a great book. You know, it's not attending seminary. I know a lot of people that went to seminary expecting great things. They left totally disillusioned. You know what they really needed? They just needed to be discipled by somebody, you know. That's where you really learn. That's where life change occurs. And I'll tell you why next week as we look at the characteristics of a discipleship relationship. Second, the best time to start is right now. You don't need to wait for the next program. You don't need to wait for us to come up with another spiritual path to maturity. You don't need to read a book. You don't need to wait for the next big thing spiritually. In fact, do you know what I would be more excited about than us having one or 2,000 new attendees over the next year? I would be more excited about 1,000 new relationships where people are being meeting one-on-one in a discipleship relationship. And I don't think the answer is that we stop meeting like this on the weekends. We need to celebrate and worship together. It reminds us of what God is doing. But I do want you to know that if this is your only venue For spiritual growth, you are a very, very malnourished Christian. And if you're one of those people that send me emails about, I need deeper teaching, nope. If you're that hungry, you ought to be mature enough to feed yourself, okay? My desire is that we each individually do our part in the process of learning and personalizing God's truth. I want you to know how the gospel impacts your life in the marketplace, how it impacts your life as a student on campus, how it impacts your life as a parent, a spouse, a friend. I want it to bother you. I want it to get in your grits. And I said that last night. I don't know where it came from, but that's my new phrase, get in your grits. I'm gonna make t-shirts, get in your grits, right? I want it to bother you. I want it to get in your grits, If your Christianity lacks authenticity, that's my prayer. And as it bothers you, (laughs) as it gets in your grits, I'm just praying that God will lead you across the path of someone and that someone will say to you, hey, we ought to spend some time together. Why don't we go to Starbucks? Let's just go on Tuesdays at seven o'clock in the morning before work and let's bring our Bibles and let's just talk about what God is doing in our lives And let's see if things begin to change. And I'll open up to you because I know you'll keep it to yourself and you open up to me and we're gonna encourage and we're gonna pray for one another and we're gonna get through this together. This is the journey we're going on. But if that's gonna happen, you're gonna have to make the choice. Now, let me just say this. I can't be responsible for what happens in the other 1,599 megachurches in America. I have no control. I don't even have any control over this place. It's out of control. I mean, it's crazy. Cats and dogs sleeping together. It's crazy. It's crazy around here, right? But I, do, I can tell you this, at Hope Community Church, we are going to focus on the individual more than ever. Because this is what I believe. As we focus on the individual and we take care of the individual, God will entrust us to more individuals. We don't have to worry about that. I believe God, any principle that when we take care of what God has given us, God will say, I can trust people to you. And he'll send us more hurting people that we will love where they are and they'll encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for such a simple plan. Boy, we make it complicated. Good gracious. 17 characteristics of a disciple. 23 things you got to do. 14 books you got to read. 2,000 verses you got to memorize. And you're like, no, it's just life. 
It's just living out the gospel. Give us the courage to do that, to commit to it. In your name we pray, amen. 